0: William Collins presents Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. This is a history of our times. This is a history of the pioneering women who defied the odds to transform modern Britain. This is a history of women who achieved remarkable things but have faded into oblivion. Throughout this series, you'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, Bloody Brilliant Women, the pioneers, revolutionaries and geniuses your history teacher forgot to mention which tells the stories of incredible women from the 1880s to the modern day. In this episode, we'll explore Thatcherism, the woman and the movement. We'll learn about her changing attitudes towards working women, and the way in which all women in politics during her era were compared, favourably or unfavourably, to Thatcher herself. We'll also see how women like Brenda Dean and Betty Cook took her on during the 1980s. Part One People often ask me what Margaret Thatcher was like, assuming I must have met her, But by the time I started writing about politics for the Financial Times in the late 1990s, Britain's first female Prime Minister had exited stage right, notwithstanding her occasional interventions on, say, Europe, and she was regarded by many as irrelevant or worse. The Conservative MP Edwina Currie noted in her diary that when Thatcher appeared in the Commons during the premiership of her successor John Major, only the hardcore faithful spoke to her. Everyone else slides past as if she's a turd on the pavement. Thatcher is not a hidden or overlooked figure, but her attitude to gender, especially where it touched on her own femininity, affected the careers and livelihoods of countless women in Britain throughout the 1980s and beyond. Thatcher was strong and purposeful, a bona fide conviction politician, and it's only fair to acknowledge her successes as well as her failures. The Britain she inherited from James Callaghan's Labour government was a mess crippled by rampant inflation and toxic industrial relations disputes. By fair means and foul, she reversed what felt at the time like unstoppable national decline. She cut an imposing figure on the world stage. She encouraged aspiration and entrepreneurialism. She took enormous risks and picked enormous fights. Crucially for a politician, she genuinely didn't care if people liked her or not. But she did nothing for women. She left even her own mother out of her entry in Who's Who. It was her father, alderman and shopkeeper Alfred Roberts, who commanded her love for instilling in her solid Methodist values like thrift and self-reliance when she was growing up in Grantham. One consequence of what Thatcher's biographer Hugo Young calls the competing and contradictory aspects of her gender was her blind faith in meritocracy. Anyone who suggested this was a crazy conviction in the face of so much that impeded women's progress was found guilty of that cardinal left-wing sin, whining. The battle for women's rights has been largely won, she declared in 1982. The days when they were demanded and discussed in strident tones should be gone forever. I hated those strident tones that you still hear from some women's libbers. Of course Thatcher's awareness of the stridency or engendered parlance shrillness of her own tone led her to employ voice coaches so that hers would have a more masculine pitch. And although she insisted, I don't notice that I'm a woman, you can't help wondering if she suspected something was up when despite being Prime Minister and First Lord of the Admiralty, she was refused membership of that Tory establishment bastion, the Carlton Club, for just this reason. Interestingly, given how publicly dismissive Thatcher was of affirmative action, her government did take steps to improve gender diversity in the civil service. Equality officers were appointed, and in 1984 Anne Muller became the most senior woman in the civil service when she was made second permanent secretary in the Management and Personnel Office, although a 1994 assessment of the initiative commended only modest progress from a very low starting point. One or two other female-friendly policies followed. In 1988, her Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nigel Lawson, reformed the personal taxation system so that a man was no longer responsible for his wife's taxation. The present system takes the income of a married woman as if it belonged to her husband, he said in his budget speech. Quite simply, that is no longer acceptable. Finally, in 1990, a white paper was published proposing the creation of the Child Support Agency, CSA. This body, launched in 1993 benefited women insofar as it ensured that absent parents, usually the fathers, paid appropriate child maintenance, although it had been designed with the more Thatcherite aim of curbing the rising cost to the public purse of lone parenthood. A body like the Equal Opportunities Commission, EOC, however, was never going to appeal to someone like Mrs Thatcher. She loathed it, and Elspeth Howe, wife of her longest-serving Cabinet Minister, Geoffrey Howe, who was its deputy chairwoman between 1975 and 1979. Elspeth Howe loathed her back, accusing her of suffering from Queen Bee Syndrome. I made it, others can jolly well do the same. In the 1980 budget, Thatcher cut the EOC's funding so that its staff numbers had to be reduced from 400 to 148. This made it less effective and so easier to criticise and mock. Thatcher only ever included one woman in her cabinet, Baroness Young, who did a brief stint as leader of the House of Lords and once tied herself in knots trying to analyse Thatcher, the woman. Women have to make instant decisions, admittedly of a minor kind, like what shoes to buy for the children and what to have for supper, she explained. This gives them a natural decisiveness which applies itself to larger fields. But there is also great caution, again very feminine, and anxiety in human terms about the effects of an action. It could be seen in Mrs Thatcher during the Falklands, The men were discussing the casualties in cold figures, but you could see that wasn't the way she was thinking about them. Or could you? Thatcher was capable of great private kindness, but notoriously bad at empathising with grand-scale human suffering. Is empathy a largely female attribute? So much of the debate around Thatcher seems to involve grading her personality on a gender spectrum. Even Hugo Young still her shrewdest analyst, weighs her hard masculine qualities against soft female ones, like crying frequently, which Young alleges she did. Meanwhile, other talented Tory women went unpromoted, among them Linda Chalker, who put her time as Minister for Overseas Development in Africa to good use after she left Parliament when she founded the Africa Matters Consultancy. Angela Rumbold, who did her biggest job as Deputy Chairman under John Major, and Sally Oppenheim-Barnes, who never rose higher than Minister for Consumer Affairs in the Department of Trade. Mrs Thatcher offers her own life and career as proof of the folly of feminism, wrote Wendy Webster in her book Not a Man to Match Her. Since she has achieved power and success, she sees no reason why other women could not do so if they wanted. But curiously, she usually does not think they ought to want to. As we saw earlier, this was not always Thatcher's view. In the 1950s, she championed the right of women to work, especially herself. Remember her comment about needing a career? Because that was the kind of person I was. Once she became Prime Minister, though, she preferred women to conform to the traditional conservative model of the housewife and mother. Part-time work was fine if you had no other choice or wanted some pin money, but the demands of a career had to be weighed against the responsibility of bringing up children, which was, it went without saying, a woman's work. In the February 1989 edition of She magazine, Thatcher was asked whether her government would introduce tax allowances for working mothers. Her reply is both revealing and ridiculous. No, there would be the most terrible abuses. Women make their own arrangements now and they can carry on doing so. Where women are going out and earning money while their children are still young, they have some basic fundamental decisions to make. Can they in fact go out at all at that stage in their children's development, Or should several women get together and arrange that one looks after the children while the rest go out part-time? Once or twice, this attitude led to unintentional comedy as she praised women whose achievements were emphatically professional or political for other things entirely. In July 1982, in a speech commemorating the suffragist liberal politician Marjorie Ashby, Thatcher noted bizarrely that the suffragettes had had the inestimable privilege of being wives and mothers, and they pursued their public work against the background of full and happy domestic lives. They neglected no detail of those lives, so that they were warm as well as immensely capable women. This would have come as a surprise to the many lesbian suffrage campaigners such as Cicely Hamilton and Edith Craig, who managed somehow to be warm and capable without male assistance. Despite not really being one, Thatcher promoted herself as a housewife, She claimed to buy her underwear from Marks and Spencer, just like ordinary women. Her most trusted prop was her handbag, from which she would produce notes, quotes and other documents. Altercations with her became known as handbaggings. The housewife stood for thrift, so possessed an intuitive understanding of Tory economic policy. They know, I know from experience, the sort of thing which they encounter daily, as she told the BBC in 1979. Whether this was true or not, it resonated. In 1983, 46% of women voted Conservative, compared to 42% of men. More data from the period shows that women were more likely to support Thatcher personally than men, more likely to share her economic vision, and more likely to support her policies on education. Throughout her term as Prime Minister, middle-aged and older women especially stuck with her, though over time younger women swerved to the left. As Laura Beers concludes in her study of female voting patterns in the 1980s, while feminists viewed Thatcher as an enemy of women's liberation, on average women voters were less likely to view Thatcher as anti-feminist. In her speech to the Conservative Party conference in 1969, Thatcher quoted Socrates' aphorism, once a woman is made equal to a man, she becomes his superior. But how was that equality to be attained? For all Thatcher's love of meritocracy the playing field had been levelled for her by the wealth of her husband, Dennis. It enabled her first to stop working as a chemist and train as a lawyer, then to hire a nanny to look after her twins. Presumably she was unwilling to take her own advice and patch together ad hoc childcare with the help of random female acquaintances. Many women would have been encouraged to stay at home by their husbands and come under enormous social pressure to do so. It's remarkable, and very much to his credit, that Dennis was so happy for his wife's success to transcend his own. We don't think of Thatcher in her prime as being belittled by men, especially those within her circle, but it did happen. One of her former advisers, Alfred Sherman, once observed, Lady Thatcher is great theatre as long as someone else is writing her lines. She hasn't got a clue. According to this view, she was just an opportunist whose belief in free markets, privatisation, monetary control, spending cuts and low taxation happened to coincide with those of the clever boys at the Centre for Policy Studies, CPS, the right-wing think tank which Sherman co-founded with Thatcher and Keith Joseph, and from which Thatcherism emerged in the late 1970s. Thatcher liked to tell a story about how influenced she had been at university by the road to serfdom, the Nobel Prize-winning economist Friedrich Hayek's 1944 broadside against central planning, which argues that empowering the state disempowers the individual. It's one of Thatcherism's key texts. But in 2006, shortly before he died, Sherman told the journalist Andy Beckett, Thatcher came from Grantham with her mind made up. She brought Grantham with her. I doubt whether she ever read Hayek. As for her rise to power, it was chance. In Mrs Thatcher's wake came other no-nonsense Tory women who, like her, attracted equal parts desire and loathing. Anne Widdecombe, known for her socially conservative views on abortion and gay rights, entered Parliament in 1987 as MP for Maidstone. Edwina Currie, junior health minister between 1986 and 1988, as MP for South Derbyshire in 1983. Both were frequently caricatured in misogynistic and, in Curry's case, anti-Semitic terms. Widdicombe nicknamed Doris Karloff. Curry called her a pushy Jewess. And then there was Virginia Bottomley. Married to the MP Peter Bottomley, she became an MP herself for South West Surrey in 1984 after a by-election, but only really entered the public consciousness in 1992 when she joined John Major's cabinet as Secretary of State for Health. Tasked with major structural reforms to the NHS, including the closure of the London Hospital St Bart's, founded in 1123, she developed a reputation for insincerity and for giving statistic-heavy, teflon-coated answers to journalists' questions. This was hardly unusual behaviour for an MP. Why, then, was she so disliked? Because she was felt to have performed a gender-betraying ideological U-turn. Although her mother, a teacher, had been a Conservative councillor, Virginia was educated in something of a progressive left bubble, a sociology degree at Essex University, then an MSc in Social Administration at the London School of Economics. Initially, her career proceeded along these lines. She worked for the Child Poverty Action Group, where she lobbied to ensure child benefit was paid to mothers rather than fathers through the tax system, then for the NHS for 10 years as a psychiatric social worker people felt entitled to ask how on earth she had ended up a senior figure in a government that seemed to want to privatise healthcare. The apparent mismatch between Bottomley's feminine looks and masculine views was remarked upon by journalists. And of course she is a woman, with all the caring connotations that implies, and much beauty besides, wrote the Independent's Geraldine Bedell in a 1994 profile. The wide, lipsticked mouth engulfs people in smiles. The eyes are wide and concerned-looking. The skin is clear, the shoes sensible. She is an ideal of a certain kind of modest, intelligent womanhood. She is, Bedell continues, the type whose composure men frequently long to disturb. The MP, Hywel Williams, echoed this assessment, calling Bottomley the kind of assured, attractive, bossy woman whom a certain type of English professional male wants to harm physically. Back in those halcyon pre-Weinstein days, it seemed OK to suggest that Tory women were inherently rapable, especially if they had a distractingly sexy air of competence. Even left-wing women found themselves compared to Thatcher, for no other reason than that they knew their minds. One of Thatcher's most tenacious 1980s adversaries was Brenda Dean, head of the Society of Graphical and Allied Trades, SOGAT Union, which represented Fleet Street's printers. In January 1986, News International, publisher of The Times, The Sunday Times, The Sun and The News of the World, decided to move its operations from Fleet Street to Wapping in East London, frustrated by the intransigence and strike-prone nature of the print unions and wanting to replace the old hot-metal method of newspaper typesetting with computer technology. When 4,000 SOGAT members went on strike in protest, they were sacked. Dean went into bat on their behalf and became a frequent sight at rallies and on television. To those on the right, she was a union firebrand, but those on the left saw her as an appeaser who had dared to break bread, well, eaten barbecued lamb chops with News International's owner Rupert Murdoch at his house in Beverly Hills. Born in Eccles, Lancashire in 1943 in the middle of an air raid, Dean was the first woman ever elected to lead a major British industrial trade union despite having been taught at school that, as girls, we were destined only to be reliable, conscientious assistants to men. With her bouffant blonde hair, she did bear some resemblance to Thatcher, though Edwina Currie is overstating it when she says that Dean could have passed for the Prime Minister's younger sister. Elsewhere, force of circumstance brought Thatcherish, as opposed to Thatcherite, zeal and conviction to quarters where it had never existed before. During the 1984 miners' strike, strong women who had once left the room when the news came on the TV became fiercely political. Women like Betty Cook from Woolley, a pit village near Barnsley in Yorkshire, ran communal kitchens, addressed rallies and found themselves at the sharp end of the police's attempts to restore order on picket lines. Cook had her knee broken in three places by a truncheon. Cook's life had been untouched by the predominantly urban middle-class phenomenon of feminism, During the strike, my eyes were opened, and after it I divorced my husband. I'd always been told I was thick and I was stupid by my husband, but I learned I wasn't. During the strike, my mother told me I wasn't fit to be a mother or a wife. Underneath, she was proud of me for going on the picket line, but she didn't like me going out of the women's traditional role. In truth, few people did like this. In the early 1980s, outside Greenham Common Air Base near Newbury in Berkshire, Women protesting against the storage of 96 American cruise missiles there, part of a planned European-wide NATO deployment, were rewarded for their convictions by being bullied and abused. Camped out along the nine-mile perimeter fence in makeshift benders of plastic sheeting, the women were more interested in staying warm than looking beautiful. And while it wasn't inaccurate to describe the camps as dirty – the women's blackened cooking utensils and supposedly infrequent washing provoked a grotesquely misogynistic response. Oberon War wrote that the women smelt of fish paste and bad oysters. Local youths smeared the camp with excrement and poured pig's blood over the women while they slept. Soldiers leaving the camping coaches would bare their buttocks at the women as they drove past. The protest was symbolic, mostly peaceful, even spiritual but it was also about physically stopping the missiles from entering the base. In March 1982, the women formed their first major blockade, only to be dragged along roads and thrown into ditches. Later, they occupied the base itself and climbed onto the missile silos. In one sense, the women failed in their goal. The missiles arrived in November 1983, but they had provoked a national conversation about the safety and value of nuclear weapons, embarrassing the government and the military into the bargain. Anne Pettit, who co-led the original march from Cardiff to Greenham Common that resulted in the camp being founded, wrote that women were far more concerned about nuclear weapons than were most men. In fact, women in general seemed to just be less easily blinded than men by visions of technological advance. Is this true? For all that the Greenham Common protest was an inspiring example of feminist pacifism, it exposed the dangerously thin ice beneath the concept of women in general. Not all women opposed war after all. They also served increasingly successfully in the armed forces. In August 1982, the Army Board ruled that members of the Women's Royal Army Corps, WRAC, could bear arms, though women could not be employed in a position that would place them in direct combat and could not serve in any post that in a time of war would be filled by a man. Relatively late in the day, March 1984, by which time the women had been at the camp for three years, the novelist Caroline Blackwood spent time at Greenham, Recounting her experience in a book, On the Perimeter. She found it was local women in Newbury who were among the most hostile to the activists. I really loathe them, one housewife told Blackwood. Others spread myths, for example, that Newbury's swimming baths had had to increase their levels of chlorine because the women used them. In 1987, the Soviet Union and the United States signed the INF Treaty, after which all the missiles were removed and destroyed. In February 1993, Greenham Common Air Base was closed and sold off. It is now common land once more, replete with dog walkers and grazing cattle, although a hardy band of campaigners remained there until September 2000. Can the women claim credit for the base's closure? To some degree, I think, even if they didn't directly influence government policy. As Suzanne Moore has written, the protest had a different kind of power. It taught my generation about collective action, about protest as spectacle, a way of life, incredibly hard but sometimes joyous. Still the image of resistance for me is the picture of Greenham women dancing in 1982, witchy, unarmed women dancing on a missile silo. This magical, powerful image shows how the peace camp both played on traditional images of the feminine and then subverted them. Greenham created an alternative world of unstoppable women, it changed lives. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. Bloody Brilliant Women, the pioneers, revolutionaries, and geniuses your history teacher forgot to mention, is available now in paperback from all good bookstores and as an audiobook and ebook from Apple Books, published by William Collins. Join me again in our next episode as we delve further into the pioneering women of the 20th century. And meet more bloody brilliant women.